From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. On September 13th, the infamous morality police in Tehran arrested Mahsa Jina Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman, for violating the misogynist hijab law of the Islamic Republic. Mahsa Amini fell into a coma shortly after being arrested, and three days later, on September 16th, died in police custody. Amini had reportedly been beaten after her arrest and transferred to a detention center in Tehran. Following her death, anti-government protests erupted across the country and rapidly spread to some 100 cities and all provinces in Iran, with women burning their headscarves or simply taking them off to reclaim the rightful space in the public sphere. Thirteen days after Amini's death, the wave of protest in Iran does not seem to be easing. On the contrary, more people are joining this historic uprising and they're speaking out against the compulsory hijab and the decades of repression. University professors, artists, students, writers, teachers, and workers' unions have issued public statements in support of the protest, and there have been calls for a general strike. The call for change had been simmering in Iran for a long time, but with this latest wave of protest, it has reached a boiling point. According to Committee to Protect Journalists researcher Yegane Rezaian, the organization has learned of new journalist arrests every day. By September 29th, the Committee to Protect Journalists had confirmed that at least 28 journalists had been arrested, many violently, usually after midnight. Thousands of protesters have been arrested as well. Norway-based NGO Iran Human Rights estimates that at least 76 protesters have been killed thus far, but many observers believe the number could be even much higher. Amid protests against the killing of Mahsa Jina Amini, the regime has cut off mobile internet, WhatsApp, and Instagram to interrupt the flow of information raising fears about further atrocities. I spoke with Haide Morisi, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at York University in Toronto, about the ongoing protest in Iran. Professor Morisi is the author of several books, including Populism and Feminism in Iran, Women's Struggle in Male-Defined Revolutionary Movement, and Feminism and Islamic Fundamentalism, The Limits of Postmodern Analysis. I must tell you very frankly that I am extremely energized by it. You said it is not like any other mass movements that we have had in the last decade or so. In terms of, you know, the militancy that we see in terms of the cooperation and unity among, so far at least, among the participants in the protest. And of course, on top of all of this, the leadership role that women have assumed and the acceptance of this leadership by the young men who are participants in the movement. Zan Zendigi Azadi, it's a mm-hmm. Kurdish slogan which translates to woman, life, freedom, 
has become the symbolic expression of the mass anger. Mm -hmm. yes. It first broke out at Mahsa Amini's funeral in her hometown of Saqqez in Kurdistan, where women enraged by her death started taking off their hijab. Of course, there was a protest by both men and women at her funeral. And soon after, the protest spread to four corners of the country, more than 80 cities and 30 provinces in Iran. What is the significance of this slogan? And how do you think it manifests and captures the nature of the protest and the demands of the protesters? I should also add that with this slogan, there have been other slogans, specifically death to Khamenei, we do not want the Islamic Republic and other similar slogans. Mahsa or Jina's murder exposed the systemic discrimination and the common history and common fate of the people who more clearly bear the brunt of discrimination and suppression uh, in the hands of the Islamic regime in Iran. The slogan that you mentioned, Zan Zendegi Azadi, Women, Life, Freedom, that as you know, even the newspaper Liberation in France actually used the Farsi words because of its significance, I believe, for the whole world was, as you mentioned, uh, originated in Kurdistan. But now that it has become the motto of different protest movements in various cities in Iran, shows the affinity that uh, the protesting young men feel with the cause of women, and at the same time, the respect for four decades of women's resistance and uh, resilience that are no longer deniable. Mm. So it is an expression of solidarity, basically, with the two most discriminated, victimized, and at the same time, irrepressible sections of the population, women mm. and courts. This, in my view, this slogan, and the fact that it has become the motto of the protest in over a hundred cities in Iran right now, I consider as really the sign of hope, mm. something that these young protesters have brought back to Iran, regardless of what, what happens next. We all know that probably a major crackdown, more than what has already been launched, is awaiting them. Professor Mogesi, mm -hmm. uh, you see this moment as a transformative one that there is no going back. Yes, but with much hopes, actually. Because, you know, the sources of repression, the possibilities of this regime, and its determination to crack down on dissidents are basically endless. The brutality is endless. So I am at the same time, this is to say that I'm at the same time very fearful for the protesters. And many people share your, your assessment of the situation, both being hopeful and fearful of what awaits them. According to Amnesty International, more than 75 protesters have been killed. Right. According to Iranian government itself, which is an underestimation, 
of the number of people who've been arrested, they put it at somewhere around 1,300 people. And Amnesty International has also said that at least four children have been killed and their pictures are going around on social media as young as 15 and 16 years old. And Amnesty International described the harrowing pattern of deliberate and unlawful firing of live ammunition at protesters. The Heba Morayev Amnesty's Middle East and North Africa director told The Guardian, the rising death toll is an alarming indication of just how ruthless the authorities' assault on human life has been under the darkness of the internet shutdown. There has been a tendency to reduce these protests and demands of the protesters to removal of the morality police from the street or simply making hijab optional. One commentator even wrote, there has been an intensification of repressive state policies under the Raisi administration that have targeted women in particular. These protests are showing that people's demands and women's demands cannot be reduced to just some tweaks in the system. In the past, we have seen numerous videos of regimes, security forces, and police beating women, dragging them into vans and taking them away, arresting them, and imposing fine on them. So it has also become a business for the regime. Surveillance cameras have been installed in public places such as subways to identify and find women who fail to quote-unquote adhere to this draconian hijab law and other, quote, moral deviations. How do you see the killing of Mahsa or Gina Amini? And what happened to her in a more historical context? It's actually very, very important, in my view, that you make a point of going back to what triggered these protests, not the killing of Mahsa, because... Mahsa's killing actually was not something that the Iranians have or the world has not seen before. That is arrest, beating, murdering women who defy the rules of conduct or choice of dress, veiling, and then uh, attributing their death to heart attacks or suicide. You recall the killing in point blank, Neda Agha Sultan, during the... 2009, a street protest, or Zahra Bani Yaqub, a young physician who two days after her arrest for quote-unquote improper veiling, the prison guard said that she had uh, committed uh, suicide. So it is not unusual. In my personal view, Mahsa means torture and murder in custody should be considered yet another victim of Islamic fundamentalism. And I explained why. The protests that we witness in the streets of Tehran and other cities, over a hundred now, is no doubt a political and cultural revolt. No question about that. However, it has its foundations in the accumulated anger, humiliation, and loss of hope for any meaningful change, particularly for young men and women who are now on the streets. For decades of persistent assault on people's sense of dignity by the Islamic regime, it is this foundation that ignited 
was ignited by uh, Mahsal's innocent, brutal death. In other words, I want to say that economic and administrative mismanagement, plundering natural and economic resources, the ever-widening gap between the rich and poor, right now, for example, according to the official statistics, repeatedly, it is reported that 50% of the population lived under poverty line. In a very uh, resource-rich country, this is outrageous. Water shortages, as you know, is a serious problem, and it's triggered a huge protest a few months ago, for example, in southern Iran. And these are the results of wasting water resources on wrong-headed uh, agricultural policies, dying up of lakes, etc., etc. Et Not to mention the billions of dollars spent on financing Islamist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, or Ayatollah Khamenei's ambitious projects of spreading Shia ideology around the world, as well as the nuclear project. So what it means is that the general anger is the issue that explains mobilization right now in Iran across class, age, gender, ethnicity, it is targeting the regime in its totality. It's not now, you know, specifically demanding, for example, the removal of mandatory hijab or the closing down of uh, so-called morality police. No, no. It is basically death to the dictator and we will die but take Iran back. That's what people are chanting. We don't want the Islamic Republic, they clearly and loudly are shouting on the streets. Definitely on the Raisi, Iran is implementing harsher misogynist policies. But I remember how many journalists in the West, they treated the former administration and specifically Mr. Zarif, the foreign minister, with kid gloves. When he was in the U.S. in 2018, he was asked what he would say to one of the women jailed for not wearing hijab if she were sitting in front of him. And then Mr. Zarif reduced the issue of forced hijab to a matter of dress code. He said, I know that you cannot even enter McDonald's without a T-shirt on. That's a dress code. I don't want to minimize that but you should not over-sensationalize it. The fact is that there is a dress code. Veiling has never been a dress code, except uh, in 19th century and the first few years of uh, the 20th century, after the constitutional revolution of 1905 to 1911, many women started taking off their veils in public. Veiling was never, ever, a dress code uh, in the 20th century Iran, until the Islamists captured the state power. I gave the example of many women, including my own mother, whenever they were not, for example, in the mood for dressing up, if they wanted to go visit a friend or go shopping in the neighborhood, they just would put some 
kind of cover a chador or something and go and come. But these were unveiled women because otherwise they, they were not wearing veil or hijab. I mean, it is political justification by Mr. Zarif or whoever talks about that. And you know, feminists in Iran who have been fighting this mandatory hijab, they are not against veiled women. They are for choice. If any woman wants to wear veil, let her do. That's not the point. The point of uh, contention is forcing veil on women as the Islamic Republic is now doing. And I must also take you back a little bit to the 1979 revolution. I want to go there with you. But before we do that, I want to ask you if you can talk about the guidance patrol, when they were created and why they were created. What were they supposed to do exactly? They are called, as you know, in Persian, they are called Gashti-Ishat, guidance bodies. In the West, they are referred to as morality police. They were created about two decades ago after the unveiling punishment became law more clearly. The number of these bodies have increased over the years. And right now, 33 different bodies are basically overseeing that women are properly veiled. All eyewitnesses and all information that we get, all the clippings that we see, and the brutality with which they treat unveiled women tell us that these groups are basically consisting of tags, so to speak. Just most recently, they introduced these Garde Vijays Anon, the women's special units. Worse than that, Malihe, is that several years ago, Ayatollah Khamenei actually issued his edict or order and used the term basically giving carte blanche to these texts to use force as they see fit. Two years ago, a bill was passed by the majlis, by the parliament, that whatever they do, what happens as a result of their actions, they are not accountable to anyone. Those people who are calling now for abolishment of these institutions the morality police, must know that their abolishment actually requires law now, if it were to happen. And that's not enough for women. Recently, I was listening to one of the commentators, and he was saying that in defense of Mahsa Amini and condemning her death by torture, he was saying that after all, she was not improperly veiled. She was wearing uh, the uniform and the headscarf that is required by law. This I found a little bit you know, outrageous because the point is not that whether her hijab or veil was proper or not. The point was that why should the state have control over what she chooses to wear? This is basically what the women who are now burning their scarves in the streets or cutting their hair are demanding. 
control over their body. The body that the Islamic government right now, or I must say that since the revolution has tried to shape, reshape, and to make it basically to baby machines. You know of the bill that was passed its first reading in 2021, that is called the rejuvenation of the population and support of family. It is an initiative basically ordered by the by Khamenei himself for creating more babies, increasing the population to 150,000 from the 80,000 something that today is. Because he needs the, the army, basically, for support of his ideology and the ambitions that he has for making Iran basically the bastion of Shiite, uh, maybe caliphate. You spoke about the long history of women's struggle going back to 1979. You wrote the book Populism and Feminism in Iran. In the introduction, you write, women presented the first and to a certain extent, the most effective challenge to the Islamic regime by courageously questioning the clerical authority to define the conditions of their lives. The resistance, however, could not fend off the formidable offensive of the new regime. You write, March 8, 1979 marked the first celebration of International Women's Day after more than 50 years and should be remembered as a turning point in the history of the 1979 revolution. Women protesters basically captured the streets of North Tehran as high school and university students, teachers, females, employees from government and non-government agencies marched from all directions toward Tehran University, where a celebration was planned. In another place in your book, Feminism and Populism in Iran, you write, Women's lives and their resistance under the Islamic government and their quiet struggle for change expose the weakest point of the Islamic regime, probably the most important illustration of women's resistance is the Islamic dress code hijab as the symbol of reasserting Islamic identity and purification of a society from Western culture. Hijab is the focal point of the state propaganda and gender politics. No surprisingly, the most obvious signs of women challenge to Islamic State and its policies is also centered on defying the hijab code. And you wrote this in 1996. And why women were the first to oppose the Islamic regime that was trying to establish itself? You know, the protesting women who took to streets immediately after Ayatollah Khomeini's pronouncement on hijab, he actually said uh, in his statement that women are going to offices naked. The late historian Homan Atir at the time wrote, uh, it is winter. How is it possible that <laughs> women go to, to offices naked? But what he had done actually was beyond joking because uh, women who took to the streets rightly saw mandatory hijab as a prelude 
to restrictions on other areas of their lives. Within a year or two, actually, we saw that kind of prophecy <laughs> coming true. Suspension of the reformed family law, pushing women out of workforce, either by premature retirement or basically expelling them from their places. In parentheses, I must say that right now, the rate of women's unemployment double those of men, according to state statistics. Other measures were put in place, sexual segregation of public places, of certain professions, so on and so forth. So hmm. women saw this coming. Unfortunately, and this comes the issue of populism mm. and a kind of fascination of certain intellectuals, left and liberal, with uh, these claim of anti-imperialism of Khomeini and his associates. They didn't support these demonstrations, unfortunately. More than that, actually, they started articles day in, day out, advising women to have the interests of the country in mind and don't make the job an issue, so on and so forth. And unfortunately, that affected some women who bought this idea and others who basically were feeling that they are isolated and are not supported by part of their own sisters and went back home. In addition to that, certain kind of more moderate clerics like Ayatollah Talagani and others publicly stated that, oh no, the hijab that Ayatollah orders doesn't mean chador. Chador is the head-to-toe covering. That's right. Just modesty. That's what we are asking women. So many women were also deceived by that. Unfortunately, I was in those demonstrations. I was hurt by the tags who were pressing us from both sides. But maybe right now, looking back, I would say that I didn't take this struggle as seriously as, as it should have at that time. Your book was published in 1999, and you write, as recently as July 1993, Vice Squads detained 802 women and men in Tehran for violating Islamic dress code. Iranian officials lamented the fact that 80% of those detained were under the age of 20, the generation who have grown under the Islamic Republic, but obviously not influenced by its vast propaganda and machinery. Clearly, the hijab and women's non-compliance is as much as a preoccupation of the fundamentalists today as it was in the first year of the revolution. You can write this today. Absolutely. And let's not forget that right now, the commander of Tehran police, many eyewitnesses are reporting that the majority of the young men and women uh, streets right now, they are 15 to 25. And who are these young people? They are the generation that were raised day in, day out under the propaganda of the Islamic government and its ideological functionaries. 
and yet they have turned their back on mm. the Islamic regime. I would say that actually this generation has been a ticking bomb mm. that the regime ignored for years by uh, failing to provide them with employment, recreation, and any prospect for future advances and well-beings. It is for no reason that thousands of these young people actually jeopardize their life for leaving the country because they don't have any hope for future. Some of these young protesters have experienced previous protests and the regime's uh, brutal crackdown. Take it from the 1999 student unrests. Also, the protests that uh, in 2020 took place against the deliberate shutdown of uh, Ukrainian flights of 725 by the Revolutionary Guards. These young protesters, many of them are from working classes or the lower middle classes. Mm -hmm. And thanks to the social media, they are well-informed and are hell-mad about the extent of financial and moral corruption and duplicity of high-ranking clergy and their children and their cronies. They are fed up with the suffocating security forces, Islamification policies. Basically, they deny these young people the right to dance or interaction with opposite sex. As it is well known, they are detained, questioned, and humiliated by the so-called morality police for such ridiculous things as modern hairstyles or wearing sleeveless shirts. On the other hand, they have in mind the horrifying treatments their peers endured at the hands of the police and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, the pastors, or the violent besieges and plain-clothed tags in previous uprisings. They know too well that they can't expect any leniency or mercy if they are captured. So in a way, they don't feel that they have anything to lose. That explains the persistency, the steadfast protest that we have been witnessing for 10 days now in Iran. As you just mentioned, after the revolution, women's issues were on the periphery of the struggle or were not considered essential and instrumental in the struggle for democracy and social justice in Iran, mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that women became the first target of the clerical regime. Today, four decades later, women have become the agents of change. And their struggle is linked to women's liberation, gender equality, and uh, social and economic justice, and the struggle for democracy. And, and they are getting significant support from men. How do you explain this transformation? There are yeah. so many young men supporting them and are helping them in their struggle. Yes, they are supporting right now women's protests. And in fact, if we agree that right now there is the amazing leadership role of women in these protests, in the current movement, I would say that a growing number of people in Iran are gradually understanding 
that it would be only foolish to think about democracy and political freedom without considering gender democracy. I would say that the men have come to realize or acknowledge basically the incredible sufferings of women at the hands of the Islamic regimes and its functionaries and have developed a respect for women's resistance and resilience. This is something new. I don't romanticize this at the same time. There are some people who support women's struggle, some men and maybe some women, in the sense of, you know, the long-standing culture of the past in demonstrations or street protests, women were somehow immune from being beaten up or tortured because they were the honor, namus, of men. And they were not, no one should have raised hands against women whereas they could beat men as much as they wished. This has not been the case under the Islamic rule. Isn't that a contradiction? Isn't it a duplicity of the Islamic regime? And people have witnessed how the Islamic guards or these guidance bodies have beaten up women, have pulled their hairs when they at the point of arrest. And... Uh, They don't like it. After all, these women are daughters of someone, sisters of someone, wives of someone, mothers of someone. We have had many clips of people sometimes getting involved and clashed with the so-called morality police. Even the funerals have become sites of protests. Absolutely. Before we end, I want to ask you a very difficult question. Where do you think these protests are heading? Actually, I want to tell you that I am one of those, and there are not very few of us who expect a much more brutal crackdown on the protests coming. And, you know, you mentioned 76 people. That's actually... At least. Yes, and but um, we know that it's much more than that. But in any case, I don't think that's all. I don't think the regime is done with killing and with arrest. And the regime is actually signaling what it has in store for the protesters. It has characterized the current protesters as hooligans at the service of foreign countries. Some officials have gone as far as calling them Daeshi, which means someone affiliated with ISIS. That's not out of ordinary. Actually, that's that's exactly what they do in every kind of protest, be they the teachers, the workers, the retirees, the whatever. They call them stooges of foreign governments. They call them, you know, uh, the hooligans. They identify them as wanting to damage the government's reputation, so on and so forth. That is given. However, what I'm fearful about, really, is that more killings, more arrests are coming. Right now, the information that we have 
and hearing from our friends in Iran that uh, many places forget about the prisons that are already full of the detainees. What I'm fearful is that uh, Khamenei announced two days ago that women who take off their hijab are doing act of war, muharebe. The punishment for muharebe, war, is execution. Muharebe is war with God. Right, right. So basically, you know, how could be any more clear signal than this, that what they have in mind? And I must say that I didn't mention, for example, the cases of two women. LGBTQ activists. Exactly. Who are, they got the death penalty. Yeah. When they do it so using or abusing uh, the legal procedures, you can imagine what they do outside the legal procedures. Women who have defied hijab, some of them have been getting really long prison sentences, like 30 years, 28 years. It's not only hijab, Malihe. They are, you know that in 1993, actually the law passed that writing about uh, women's rights and what they call propagating and separating uh, men from women are forbidden in Iran. It's illegal. So many women right now are in prison for just writing on issues of women's rights. Having said that, I'm fearful about the future of these protests, and I don't expect, you know, a resolution or basically a retreat, a major retreat by the government. However, I do agree uh, that uh, these demonstrations have have been quite uh, remarkable in terms of coming to the point of no return. People have learned from previous demonstrations, lessons that they are using in this demonstration. And the young people have brought hope. And this is something you know, for the country that has lived under terror for 40 years. It is very, very important, regardless of what happens next. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شلمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولی اصر و درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سکهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افغانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعارهای تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشالی برای احساس آرامش برای خورشید
پس از شبای طولانی برای غصای حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهن آبادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت پسر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی Oh, yeah.